This is Michael Easley in context. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. Why we believe what we believe about inspiration is not important to your faith, it is crucial. Because if indeed this is God's message to man, rooted from God to us in these forms we hold in our hand, it is a message of hope, it is the message of life, it is the message of truth, it is the message of salvation to which we ascribe and to which we hope to share with others. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Do you remember the first time you read the Bible? <laughs> Maybe as a child, a teen, adult, do you remember the first time you opened a Bible on your own and started reading it? Hi, this is Michael Easley in Context, and today we're thinking about the doctrine of inspiration, that God gave the Bible to us through divine revelation, and the inspiration means that God inspired human writers to write words, but God is the divine author. Think about it this way. There's a big A author, God, and a little A author, the man that wrote on a parchment, the man that wrote the very word God gave to him. I vividly remember when I started reading the Bible on my own, I didn't understand anything. I flipped around from chapter to chapter, page to page, you know, close your eyes and open the Bible and start reading. And frankly, it didn't make much sense to me. I wanted to understand it. I was in a Sunday school class where the teacher was trying to explain it to us, but I think it was uh, eighth or ninth grade uh, summer class, and uh, I started reading it, and I had all kinds of questions. I vividly remember reading the Gospel of John, and when we came to the story of Nicodemus, it really struck a chord with me. And that ministered to me, to use a word. It meant something. It kind of opened some things for me. But when I had questions about the Bible, I didn't know where to get answers. I remember asking some of the ministers of the churches that I attended, both in junior high and high school and later in college, and I chased around a lot of questions about the Bible. And the more I asked, the more frustrated I became. And the most frustrating part was if you had a, a, a problem passage, let's call it, a passage you really couldn't get around, and you ask four or five ministers or four or five people that seem to know the Scripture, and you get four or five answers, then what do you do? <laughs> It, for me, was a huge challenge all through high school and college. I wanted to read the Scripture, and I wanted to understand it. Well, this book is, we might say, a living document. And unfortunately, too many people approach it academically. Yes, we approach it devotionally, academically, but let's step further back. This is God's revealed Word to you and me. If God wanted to communicate with us, He could have done it a lot of ways. He did it in a beautiful fashion. We might say he put it in print. Now, of course, not literally, but he gave the word to man that we now have in print and on our technology. If anyone can learn to read, which essentially everyone can, then we can read his word. So God has revealed himself through his word to us. That's why the inspiration and divine revelation are important. This isn't a book about God. It's a book from God. So let's join the program in progress. In a uh, book that you've probably never heard of, Foundational Faith, <laughs> David Finkbriner begins, Miller Jackson has defined authority as the right to command belief and or action. Christians rightly recognize there's no higher authority than God. His right to command belief 
and action is unique. After all, God is creator and therefore has the right of ownership over everything. His omnipotence gives him the sovereign power to support his right of ownership, and his unlimited power and wisdom render his judgments unquestionable. Indeed, all authority derives from him. This is why discussions of biblical authority are never far removed from the question of the Bible's divine status. Listen again. This is why discussions of biblical authority are never far removed from the question of the Bible's divine status. Excellent statement and question. We are in a series I've entitled Why We Believe What We Believe. In this section, I want us to think about why we believe what we believe about inspiration, about divine revelation, is not important. It is crucial. To understand why you believe that this book is the Word of God and what all that entails is one of those foundation stones, one of those key issues that really you have no room to negotiate in. Now, as I've been studying this whole topic in recent weeks, it's been fascinating to go through and review inerrancy, divine inspiration, the transmission of the text, inerrancy, infallibility, all these issues that kind of swirl around when you talk about the Bible being the inspired Word of God. At the same time, I've been intrigued how many new arguments there are that continue to challenge that we have the very Word of God. When I served in the pastorate, there was a church right across, a a, a building right across from us that began going up prior to 9-11. And as we watched the construction of this building, it was very unusual, and then we realized it was a mosque. It was an Afghan mosque being built right across the street from us. Uh, Two of the pastors on staff that I was serving with uh, were pretty good in their knowledge of the Quran and of Islam beliefs. And as they got established, we invited their imam for lunch. Um, They didn't want to come to our church, so we met in an Afghan restaurant. And there were four of their leaders, the imam, and then four pastors, like sitting across from each other at this table. There was no one else in this restaurant for two and a half hours. And as we began chatting, the imam told a little bit of himself, and I asked a lot of questions and discovered he'd memorized the entire Quran. And when he got up, he would recite the Quran, and two, what I would call if his elders were behind him, if he made a mistake following along, and they would correct him verbally. And as we started talking about our differences and our similarities on Fridays, they used our parking lot it looked like a cab depot. <laughs> and they all walked across the street and they went to a mosque. And on Sundays we used their parking lot pre-9-11. And uh, as we talked at length, very quickly the issue became, how did you get your Bible? And for the bulk of our two-hour and change lunch, we talked about inspiration, the authority of Scripture, the difference between the Quran and what we call our Old and New Testaments. They, of course, believe that God, Allah, gave Muhammad the revelation through the angel Gabriel. And the idea that you cannot translate the Quran into any language and still have the Quran is a fundamental tenet to most Muslims. The notion that we've translated Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic into English and all kinds of different flavors of those English translations is completely foreign to their thinking. 
Because if you translate the Quran, you've lost the meaning of the Quran. Not only that, but their whole view of inspiration and the way the text is transmitted into the Quran is what they literally will die for. And so this cordial, collegial, at times lively discussion centered around, is this the word of God or not? Now, when I was in seminary and graduate school, I thought, I believed the Bible, I trusted it, that was good enough, that old bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, that's, that's kind of how simple I am. And when I sat in that lunch, I was thrilled that I had the experience to understand, how did we get this Bible? What is this document that you and I hold and love and cherish, and what does it mean to the world? If anyone challenges the Quran, you will have an interesting discussion but you can challenge the Bible all day long. The Bible is not a book like War and Peace or To Kill a Mockingbird or The Grapes of Wrath. The Bible is not composed by Ernest Hemingway's, Edith Wharton's, James Joyce's, Evelyn Waugh's, William Faulkner's, Daniel Steele's, or Stephen King. The Bible is comprised by men that God selected to pen, to scratch, to mark down words that you hold in your hand. If we look at this from a historical lens, uh, we see that we can almost say it was universally accepted by those who followed Jesus Christ that the Bible was inspired. Indeed, if you go back to Judaism, Genesis chapter 1, God said, God said, God said, God spoke, and they believed it. After all, God is the agent. In the beginning, God. And so as the divine agent who breaks through revelation and says things, Jews and believers in Christ pretty well said, well, Scripture said, it is written, God said, God has said, and in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit says. We say, oh, okay, that's the Bible. That's what we believe. Before the 19th century, that was pretty well accepted among Christendom's big umbrella. And then as things changed, you know higher criticism. Some of you have studied the issues. This is when much of this comes under attack. And the idea of dismantling the Word of God. Maybe it's just the concepts that are inspired. Oh, some of it's inspired. Maybe none of it's inspired. Let's make it a deistic book, not unlike an author just mentioned. Justin Martyr said the Bible was the very language of God. George of Nyssa in the 4th century said it is the voice of the Holy Spirit. By the 16th and 17th centuries, the Protestant Reformation in full force by the second half of this process, the evolution ideas, the humanistic ideas, and higher criticism ideas began to dismantle what we would call the historic doctrines of inspiration. Uh, I won't detail all the other issues about what people say about the Bible. You can do those at your leisure and all you want. What I want to address a little bit with you now is the idea of why we believe what we believe about inspiration. It's not important to your faith. It is crucial. Because if indeed this is God's message to man, rooted from God to us in these forms we hold in our hand, it is a message of hope, it is the message of life, it is the message of truth, it is the message of salvation to which we ascribe and to which we hope to share with others. I want to direct your attention to the Moody Doctrinal Statement, Article 2. Article 2 reads, The Bible including both the Old and New Testaments, is a divine revelation, the original autographs of which 
were verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit. Then there are two references we're going to look at in some detail, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Before we do that, I want to read a footnote that was added in 1928 to our doctrinal statement. It says, The Bible is without error in all that it affirms in the original autographs and the only authoritative guide for faith and practice and as such must not be supplanted by any other fields of human learning and whenever you're in the areas of doctrine and you start to add more words to explain something you create more pieces of the puzzle and each one of those words for you who are good students and studying these issues and wrestling with them you know every time you add another adjective you open another set of discussions in these terms so before we go too far off before I go off on this I want to look at these two passages in some detail so if you have a Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and what I would simply call this verse is scripture is the word from God scripture is the word from God in 2 Timothy 3 and I actually want to pick up the reading in verse 15 to set a context for uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 let's pick up the text in verse 15 15, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Verse 15, I think, is important because the segue through the Holy Spirit, through Paul, to Timothy, to you and me, was the word, these holy scriptures, the sacred writings of verse 15, which do two things. They have the inspiration of God, and they lead to wisdom so that a person can find salvation. Say it another way, the Bible, the scriptures, give us enough information to know what we believe. That's what Paul is saying when he reminds Timothy of these sacred writings. Context is crucial. I've encouraged, I hope, many times. Maybe you get tired of me encouraging you. Good. That's when you start learning. Um, when you have a question about something, look at the context very carefully. I've told you the story about caulking when you paint a house or you do some work you caulk to cover the cracks and blemishes and my friend used to say caulk covers a multitude of sins I like to interpret that context covers a multitude of interpretational sins when people get off you know skilter in areas go back first and look at the context in which it falls and here we have a very important context Paul said to Timothy you learned from childhood from your mother and grandmother the sacred writings which gave you the wisdom to come to salvation and then that sets up verse 16 all scripture is inspired and so on let's look at the verse in some detail all scripture is important to note there is some debate among scholars and theologians whether it's collective or distributive in other words is it all the Bible or we might say every scripture and believe it or not people argue about such things is it all or is it every and there's traction for both arguments I conclude that all scripture it's the whole Bible it's the old and new Many want to attack the New Testament. They say, well, that's Pauline, or that's Markin, that's really not inspired or inerrant. 
And we will see, and as you study this, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. So there's what we call internal evidence that corroborates. The New Testament authors, I believe, fully understood what they were writing was inspired. Not only are they referring to the old Scripture, but the New Testament as we call it as well. All Scripture. Secondly, the word often pronounced theophanoustos, now it's being pronounced theonoustos, theopnostos, the idea that it is God-breathed. This word is what we call a hapax. You know this only occurs one time. Hapax legomena sometimes. And when you come to a word in the Bible that only occurs once, it's a delightful experience. Because you can't go to other uses in the Bible to find out what it means. So you have to really do some careful study, and that's what I love to do. Find out why did the author use that word? Why did God want that word used? And as you scratch your head and do some word studies and dig around and go a little further, you start finding out some interesting ways the word may have come into existence. It simply means God breathed. Theos, God, nuos, the idea of a breath or a wind. So the word is God breathed. God superintends this. He uses his Holy Spirit so that when the men wrote the Bible, they were God breathed and directed to do it. Now, I don't know how many of you know the car manufacturer Fiat. Anyone heard of a Fiat? A few of you have. Okay. Did you ever own a Fiat? I feel sorry for you if you did. Um, if you live in Italy, great. If you live over here, it's a problem. Now, the word Fiat means one thing in the car realm, but in the English use, it means that you speak something into existence. When God spoke creation, boom, it happens. Read Genesis 1 today. God said, God said, God said, and it happens. But in Genesis 2, 7, he makes man a little differently, doesn't he? He makes man out of Adam, out of the dirt. And what does he do in chapter 2, verse 7? He what? He breathes life into him. Nephesh, his soul. He becomes a living being. We often hear the expression, death rattle, when a person dies. If you've been by a bedside, when a person dies, their breathing changes. And when the breath is gone, the person dies very soon after. Breath gives life. So we have this wonderful grand theology of the breath of God in his word. He speaks things into existence. He fiats, and it happens. And when he creates his word, when he gives meaning to a context, God spoke, then he puts his breath into it. Another way of saying this is all Scripture the extent of it, all Scripture has the characteristic of God behind it. All Scripture has the characteristic of God behind it. Now, there's four functions that Paul gives us in this text, and they are in your Bible for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Teaching, of course, is the instructing of believers, and I think, again, it goes back to chapter uh, 3, verse 15. Remember, Timothy, the sacred writings that you were taught implication that was able to lead you to salvation. All those scriptures are inspired and profitable for teaching. Secondly, reproof. A very unpopular concept today. Reproof or rebuke means to express strong disapproval of someone's sin. Rebuke's a good word, but rebuke almost sounds like a you know, stab in someone's face. Reproof has the idea, the reason English translators use it, is you're using proof to show someone their sin. You reproof them. So you'd show them the smoking gun, the videotape, the DNA evidence. You'd prove to them what they did was wrong. The Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, another hapax, another word that only occurs here. More than likely, it means setting them straight. And lastly, training in righteousness. And the word training is, uh, goes back to children, how you train a child. So this extent, all of the Scripture is God-breathed, and it has metrics, we might say. It's profitable for, for teaching someone, teaching them the Scripture, teaching them the way to salvation, teaching the wisdom of God. It's profitable for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17 finishes it out, so that, explanation perhaps, exegetical, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The reason all Scripture being inspired and profitable, the reason that it's God-breathed for these functions is so that the end result, what happens when you look at the God-breathed Scripture, is that we are changed, we're equipped to do the work God wants for us. Said another way, put your confidence in the inspired, revealed Word of God, not in cleverness or not in some you know, new thing, but put your confidence here because we're depending upon Him. I'm fascinated that social media has reduced our ability to communicate. <laughs> With 140 characters, it's a short text message, and while we're texting, let's just misspell and truncate and make up all sort of interesting text words because we don't need to complete the sentence. When we read today, we've lost the art of what most of us were trained in, even let's say 10, 15 years ago, and it's become such a quick, instantaneous society. Information has moved so fast for us all. When we read the Bible, we cannot approach it that way. It takes time. We have to reflect. We have to read carefully. We have to meditate on what we've read. We have to study a little bit. The inspiration of Scripture and divine revelation are important for many reasons, but this is the very Word of God. We brush up against it with things we don't like or don't agree with, and we make up our own theology. We say, I don't believe that part of the Bible. Uh, That part's okay. What's true for you? All those things we've been talking about. But what I want to urge you and marshal you onto is when you open up the Scripture, you can trust God at his word. Now, yes, some things are complicated. Some things we have to know the history and context of the story. Some things that are taken out of context get us into great trouble. And frankly, that's where most of our trouble comes because people say, oh, the Bible says this. The Bible's all about blood. The Bible's about genocide. You have to say, wait a minute. There's a context for all those exceptions. And when we summarize the Bible with these grandiose statements and we don't take the Bible as God's word, we get into trouble. When you open that book, when you open it on your droid or your iPad or however you access the Scripture, You're reading the very Word of God. Uh, Read it carefully. Study it. Get a commentary to help you alongside it. We have some resources on the In Context website that can help you. But Scripture is God's Word. He's spoken, and as my professor, Dr. Hendricks, often said, God has spoken, and he did not stutter. He's given us his Word. It is true, it is reliable, and it is the very Word of God and from God. I hope as you continue listening to In Context broadcast, you'll communicate with us. We'd love to hear from you. Go to the In Context website, drop us a line, send us an email as we continue why we believe what we believe. 
Well, I hope you'll join us on tomorrow's broadcast as we continue thinking about the Bible, how we got it, how it was inspired, how it is the divine revelation of God. And we'll look a little bit into the authors and why God chose to give it to us through verbal inspiration. He could have done it any way. He could have given it to us in plates or dictated it to a person. And so we'll see on tomorrow's broadcast a little more about why we believe what we believe about Scripture, how we got the Scripture, inspiration, divine revelation, and why God chose to give it to us the way he did. This is Michael Easley in Context. Hope you join us tomorrow. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.